0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett. Today we're joined by Dr. Pandy. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at SUNY Downstate Health Sciences University in New York. It's a great honor to have her today and we're very excited to have you on the podcast. We're really interested in your recent set of publications and, and research demonstrating the important impact, not just of genetics, but also the impact of parenting. And the, the title in your recent, very recent, just coming out paper in 2023 was looking at the closeness of parenting on adolescents' brain health development and their risk or decreased risk of going on to develop an addiction. I thought that title was very provocative and really exciting to see the work heading in this direction. Uh, So on this podcast, we're really interested in helping people meet you as an amazing woman in science with, with a family yourself, but also understanding the science that is starting to illuminate the important point of how us as humans, whether it's parents or people or mentors, have a huge role to play in the prevention of alcohol use disorders and also to help people and parents or others listening. Many here will have teenagers and other things, and if it's not alcohol, it's something else like uh, gaming or phones or other things, to help parents and us heal and also to come up with better strategies for preventing alcohol use disorders and addiction, not in our children but also in ourselves. Thank you so much for giving us your time would you like to tell everyone a little bit about yourself
1: first of all thank you dr bartlett for having me on your wonderful podcast um so as dr bartlett has already introduced i work in uh, suny downstate uh, health sciences university in brooklyn new york Uh, i'm a social psychologist uh, trained in interpersonal relationships and social cognition I'm most interested in examining how our social relationships across our lifespan can affect our mental health, um, sometimes exacerbate problems, sometimes actually help um, and buffer us from mental health problems. And that's uh, one of my main interests. And I'm intrigued by how social relations can do that. Um, So my current research focuses on examining social environmental factors that contribute to resilience or buffer against mental health problems, for example, alcohol or other substance use disorders, as Dr. Watt just pointed to the recently published paper. Yeah. So uh,
0: I think everyone would like to know, and specifically me probably, uh, when the data came in, what was your moment when you first saw the data revealing the role of parenting? And I, I know there's a significant set of data around this now in the last couple of decades. In promoting and preventing alcohol use disorders I and mean, you're looking at this from a, uh you, you said koga but that's the collaborative of genetics of yes. alcoholism that's been set, that was set up you know two decades ago to look at the genetic risk factors behind alcohol use disorders i've never seen um the focus move around this subject except for on the other side you know i just did a really huge interview with Dr. Ander, who's the pioneer of this work, and it totally changed my understanding of alcohol use disorders as well. So do you want to tell everyone what you felt when you saw the data?
1: Absolutely. So you're right. Uh, The study actually uses the data set from Koga, that is the collaborative study on the genetics of alcoholism. So as you said, uh, two decades ago, the study was launched and uh, the main focus was to understand the genetic impingement or like, you know, the genetic transmission of alcohol use problems. But then the focus slowly changed to like understanding alcohol as a very multifaceted problem. And um, and I'm very happy to like come out with this aspect of how uh, not just a study of like alcohol leading to impairments, but also like can there be like protection against developing alcohol use problems. So um, I was building on the known findings about parenting affecting brain development and risk for developing alcohol or substance use problems. And then I was wondering if parenting behaviors could actually protect or buffer children who basically have a higher genetic risk or those children who came from families with higher density of, you know, family alcohol use problems from developing alcohol use disorder themselves. And it was, you know, very exciting to see that they actually do. Parenting behaviors do seem to buffer um, high risk children. Genetic risk basically in the COVID study is assessed as like, you know, if you have um, so just to step back a little bit, the COGA study looked at these probands or subjects that they were recru- recruited in phase one who actually had alcohol use disorders, were like diagnosed with alcohol use disorders. And those um, individuals were brought into the study and then a, a family tree was created around them, where like, you know, their parents, their siblings, their um, partners, um, and their children were all studied. So their children in 2004, they actually started a prospective study where these children of these um, parents who had alcohol use problems were followed biannually or like every two years to see how um, their alcohol initiation happened, if at all or, you know, we collected a bunch of, like, you know, um, brain data. We also collected, uh, you know, interview or questionnaire data. We asked them a a lot of questions about the home environment, et cetera. So what we actually found out that, like, these individuals, the first phase individuals who had um, alcohol use disorder diagnoses, um, and we found that, like, those children of these parents also tended to have like a genetic predisposition. So more number of people in the family, if they were diagnosed with alcohol use disorder, the density or the genetic predisposition was higher. So these children coming from these families who had many individuals diagnosed with alcohol use disorder became called as high-risk individuals or high-risk children. Um, and that's how, when we say high risk, we're talking about the genetic loading on uh, the alcohol use problems that they could actually uh, have inherited from these families.
0: So, and that that could go over many generations too. But yes, no, that can go one over one or two generations in that study. Yes. And so, what you're talking about, in what you're interested in, is looking at really the environment. So, Absolutely. people get confused by. How can the environment affect genetic risk?
1: Yes, um, so that's a very good question. So like, I'm sure like, you know, people have kind of a rudimentary idea of genetics. I get my father's nose, I get my mother's eyes, um, you know, I'm tall as my, my dad. Um, but similarly like you know we also have predispositions for carrying on health issues or like in alcohol use problems is one of those things we can say for example Um, so that's the genetic part of it but at the same time you know just because we have a predisposition doesn't mean that we are doomed. like genetics is not destiny um, or genes is not destiny so we also that genes that the blueprint we are born with interacts or interplays with the environment we grew up with. And when we say environment, it can constitute a multitude of layers. For example, the neighborhood one grows up in, the socioeconomic status of the household, and one's minority status are some of the layers. Um, One of the most important aspects of the environment then, are social relationships. So that is also an environment. Um, so particularly those formed when critical b- brain development happens. And um, I'm actually most interested in examining the role of the social environment on brain development and mental health problems. Um, say, for example, previous work has shown that effective parenting, which comes under social environment, um, for example, where parents are available, responsive, warm, um, can mitigate even the negative influence of growing up in di- in a disadvantageous or an impoverished neighborhood or household. So I don't know if I've answered this question of like what environment means. So, but at the end of, um, I think a take-home point would be like there's genes and there's the environment we grew up in. So both of them interact. It's not like, you know, um, you have, you're born with these genes that somehow like you're doomed with it. The environment can actually interact. Uh, and sometimes uh, worse can happen. Like you can have a bad environment, um, or for example, ineffective parenting, neglectful parenting can actually exacerbate the ge- genetic risk we have. Um, no, but that's, in, just, that's such an important
0: point that people miss.
1: Exactly. So, like we are born with a genetic risk, or so called, let's take an example of this high risk child, uh, but also. Um, unfortunately, when there is ineffective parenting or some kind of neglect neglect or like, you know, adverse childhood experiences that can exacerbate or make the already existing genetic risk worse and that can quickly escalate into worse problems or so like, um, you know, yeah, you had something. to <laughs> no.
0: This is why I really liked your study okay. because um, I like all your work but I just wanted to say this particular point is missed. Yes. all medical practice everywhere. We always look at ACEs being big T trauma, but there's also the little T that aren't measured, meaning, and you mentioned it, they're about not being seen. Yep. And it can be highly functioning parents giving the best ingredients to their children, whether it's tutors, high-level schools. It's not just... Often when people think about this, they always can be erring on the side of, well, this has to be people in really poor neighborhoods. Yeah. and don't have any money. And that's not necessarily the case. I've seen a lot exactly. of neighborhoods without, it's all unintentional, by the way. <laughs> it's totally <laughs> unintentional. But that factor, this is, this is exactly the factor I discovered from my sister who went on to develop schizophrenia. It's really unintentional and, and uh, Gabor Mate talks about this in his book, it's just the thing that you don't get that can actually end up across a family of siblings expressing itself later in life. And people That's are true. shocked to know why that would happen. Yeah. But when you actually look at it, these factors of not are just as important as factors of positive parenting, for example. And we don't mean parenting, we don't mean two parents, we actually mean an, a healthy adult, don't we?
1: Yes, yes. Um, so when we say parenting, it uh, brings in this notion that it has to be like a biological parent, but there is work that has clearly shown that any responsive, warm caregiver can actually offset any kind of like this genetic risk or even the physical environmental and impoverished environmental risk as well. But, um so there is
0: talk about your recent paper too now, That yeah. the very recent one where you're... Mm-hmm clearly your work and your group and and your colleagues talking about, I thought this is really amazing, <laughs> closeness, <laughs> like the subjective um, reporting of close in adolescence, reducing the risk of the coming, going on to binge drinking or other things. Do you want to talk about what you discovered there?
1: Yeah, um, so... When, just like, you know, we spoke about in the previous points, parents can wield a dual impact on children, or let's say, when we're talking about biological parents as such. And in this study, uh, we looked at only children who reported living with their, with both biological parents between the ages of 12 to 17. And um, as I said, parents can wield a dual impact on their children, that is, we are all aware to some extent as to how parents can affect children. We are the genes that transmit. And we just learned about that. We just talked about it. But parents can also affect children through their parenting behaviors. Um, however, parental alcohol problems can also affect parenting behaviors here. Um, for example, it can you know make parents emotionally unavailable and irresponsible to their children when they need it most. Um, so um, children that grew up with parents with drinking problems tend to have higher genetic predisposition to later develop alcohol use problems. Um, So there is extensive work that has shown that even before initiation of drinking among children of parents with alcohol use disorders or parent problems, they show neurocognitive impairments or, for example, in more um, simple terms, in EEG recordings, certain neuroelectric components like uh, component or T3 amplitude and neural oscillations, that's basically uh, the measures that look at the dynamic interactions between the or within regions um, in response to a stimulus. These, um, for example, call as frontal theta are shown to be lower in decision-making tasks that, you know, um, uh, is not seen in children whose parents don't have alcohol use problems. Okay. And this is like
0: one second and say, yes, people listening uh, they were doing accurate using instruments to try and measure changes in the brain activity yes. in the front part of the brain. Um, and that's the part of the brain that's uh, impaired often from yeah. overuse of alcohol. Uh, it's, we call it the prefrontal cortex and other places, but this, this part of the brain is really important for making decisions. But it's also where yes. impulse control sits, meaning uh-huh. your ability to say no yes. <laughs> ability goes down. When that's in deficit, because the physical connections, like you're measuring activity, but it's also the physical connections uh, aren't working properly. That's what that yes.
1: means. Yes. That's right. That's right. So the interactions between these brain regions that um, in turn um, are reflected in, like, or like are seen in the decision making or choices, those connections are not happening properly or are impaired. Um, And then what was fascinating is that our lab and uh, Dr. Bernice Porges and Dr. Henry Begleiter were the first one to show that this is prior to any alcohol initiation, children of um, parents with alcohol use disorder showed that impairment. So that now we can say is because of the genetic predisposition that they already have that disadvantage. Um, And now having parents with... You're saying that
0: alcohol doesn't lead to the deficit in the prefrontal cortex. You're saying that they've already inherited a brain um, architecture, I'd like to call it. Yes. already predisposed to not being able to stop taking alcohol if they have their first sip.
1: Yes, exactly. So that's pretty much what they found in terms of like the high-risk children. Um, so they already have this predisposition and that is reflected in these um computerized decision-making tasks that they're put on and when we measure their brain activity as i said the neural oscillation the um they they show like low activity there or like you know they uh, there was a low p3 or a low frontal theta power uh, in more technical terms if i say uh, but so having parents with alcohol problems again not just this brain activity but can lead to Long-term consequences in on children's mental health, for example, these high-risk children develop, like you know, um, both externalizing and internalizing problems as well. That is, aggressive behavior. Um, there is um, chances of increased anxiety, depression, social withdrawal, etc. So the other side, um, what as you said, like about the paper was to see that traditionally. Uh, most alcohol um, related research has focused on um, the impairments. like okay, you have the genetic risk and then it leads to this impairment. What about like factors that can actually mitigate it or like kind of um, are there remedial functions? or like are there something are factors that can protect you from this genetic risk? Um, so that's where like you know we went ahead and we looked at this data. Uh, of parenting behaviors among these high-risk individuals um, between the ages of 12 to 17. Now, 12 to 17 is an adolescent period, and there's ample research that says that that's when some of the most important, crucial brain development happens. Um, What we call as brain maturation or the pruning of some of the connections in the brain areas. Um, What is pruning is like, when some of the brain areas are, or like interactions or connections are unused, they are pruned away and some of the connections become stronger. So if your brain connection is always about like getting anxious or like, um, you know, it's always in stress, those connections become stronger. But if your brain connections for how to cope with that stress or how do I cope or like, you know, mit- bring down that stress is not there because you never learned it, those go away. And then your way to respond to a stress is with anxiety. That becomes a normal for you. So I don't know if I was able to explain that yes, properly. Magic. but no,
0: that was excellent. Thank
1: you. <laughs> Thank you. So that's where the brain maturation happens between the ages of 12 to 17 is the pruning that happens. And there's work that shows that, parenting or relational experiences are very important during that period. Um, And uh, work has shown that parental monitoring, involvement, communication, and close relationship in our study has shown that like, even among children who have high genetic risk, if they have a close relationship with their parents during that critical period of adolescence, when the brain is undergoing this brain maturation or pruning it actually you know protects them from that neurocognitive deficit we just talked about that kind of you know uh, was measured with p3 and frontal theta being low now these who re- those children who had experienced close relationship with their parents tended to have on par performance as those children who did not have parents with alcohol use problems or who were not high risk so that's what we found, and it's kind of fascinating. <laughs> it
0: is because this is so interesting. Um, I, you hear many lectures from people how in evolution we have a, a drive to move towards our peers in adolescence away from our parents, right? That's an evolution evolutionary drive because we want to fit in with our peers. That's the adolescent brain. And yes. that leads some parents to think that they should be absent in a way (laughs) right because and the pressures of raising a family and two jobs and many other factors in our society now which has become very individual drives that separation too and then the peers drive further separation like they pull each other in and because there's already a, a sharp disconnect to the parents during adolescence right because the they're with their peer group, and then they're all talking about how much they hate their parents, etc. Yep. So staying close to your kids despite the negative consequences and pushback is not an easy task. That's true. That's true. But, but what I've heard from many other people in this space, they're saying it's very important for parents or, or a mentor or whatever to stay or healthy adults to be still wrapping around the adolescent children's brains and, and people.
1: That's, I agree. I mean, adolescence is a very challenging period. Um, As you rightly pointed out, Dr. Bartlett, like, you know, there's always a pull from peers. Um, There's already like a little bit of like disconnect from the home front. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, uh, there is no taking away from the importance of parenting. It has even been recently in another work from our lab, which I'm leading the paper on, um, and hopefully it will be published soon. We looked at an fMRI study, uh, and uh, these are young adults who report about their uh, closeness with their parents, the how involved their parents were, how uh, the communication with their parents were during adolescence, and uh, whether or not their parents had knowledge about their whereabouts during their adolescence. Um, so these... Um, were examined on these young adults, the association of these parenting behaviors on these young adults, um, decision making during one of the uh, often used tasks called a go no go task. It's almost like you keep going, I mean, you keep pushing a button on a certain number of like stimuli and then you stop for a certain kind of a stimuli. Like if it's a plus, you keep hitting. And if you see a cross mark, you stop, you hold back. It's again, as Dr. Bartlett rightly said, it's about inhibition. Like, how do you stop yourself from a behavior, right? So we tested this and we found, again, um, a kind of like, you know, added evidence for this current paper that we're talking about, that involvement and communication with closeness with, um, you know, adolescents during, um, um, I mean, with parents and adolescents between them actually is associated with, more optimal decision-making and, you know, better inhibition. And this has been seen in, you know, the brain functions associated, as you said, the prefrontal cortex and, you know, anterior cingulate cortex, all brain areas associated with decision-making. and
0: It's so fascinating, isn't it? And I know you've also yes. been an author on some papers looking at divorce and separation. I yes. I want to speak to... The impact so that's
1: um we I think there was a recent um paper that's probably still not published it's in a bio archive if I'm not wrong it's actually looking at parental discord uh, and then um there I think like um it's still in the works I'm not the first author on that paper so not fully particularly clear about like what the um uh, the findings of that paper are but pretty much I feel like you know parental discord is another Environment, social environmental factor that probably comes under ineffective parenting behaviors so like the more parental discord that actually exacerbates or like can actually like lead to worsen the genetic risk that you already have
0: so, so sometimes about parental discord do you want to name some of the factors
1: Yes. Yeah, so to directly talk about some of the questions was like, you know, did the, the adolescent actually see their parents argue a lot? Um, did they like, you know, hit each other? Like they were even, ex- you know, <laughs> hit each other. they disliked each other? Were they constant bickering that they, you know, were exposed to? So these are some of the questions that we asked them and we put pulled all those questions together to make one concept called parental discord so constant exposure to parental discord can be one of those um not so effective social environments that we talk about i'm also Um,
0: interested in divorce um and is because that is obviously parental discord but i've also seen situations where uh that can also be helpful
1: it is when sometimes if For example, I can just think about if there is one parent who has an alcohol use problem, and um, the child is taken away, and the other parent seems to be more effective in their parenting strategies or behaviors that can probably be better for the child. Um, So, I mean, that is that is more in terms of like hypothetically thinking. We may have to like look at the data to see if that is true. But given all the Previous research, one may assume or think that, like it's not just your own biological parents. Even when you have a responsive caregiver who's not necessarily a biological parent, um, these children can thrive. They can actually beat the odds, if you may, um, against any kind of genetic predisposition that they have. So, if and one responsive parent is probably better than having two parents with ineffective parenting behaviors maybe
0: exactly. so so this is outside the realm of what you've uh, studied yet but you're very young and very successful so I think you might end up doing it but okay we talk about one responsive caregiver what about a responsive caregiving society
1: oh i mean that is an excellent question <laughs>
0: we always put it on the individual and the family, but what, what about if we extend how it used to be more like a village mentality around what can we all do together to become more responsive to our children?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's a great question and something that we should all really reflect on. I feel because, um, I come from India. It's a more collective society and, um, now, raising my own child here in a very individualistic society, I see the differences like um both my husband and I grew up in families where like you know all your aunts and uncles were your caregivers like it was not just like one parent as such we um were disciplined, we were like you know taken care of, we had responsive adults, not just like you know multiple adults in the family, and also like everyone knew everyone in the locality. Um, we all went outside all the children played together all our neighborhood knew each other but I don't think so that is just that is um kind of the picture everywhere in the world like here in the USA now that like I see my daughter growing up here it's pretty much she has my husband and I <laughs> and then she goes to daycare she has peers there but um Apart from that, like, sometimes I feel like I don't even know my neighbor two two houses down. <laughs> so, you know, in an ideal world, I think that would be great because let's face it, we are all social beings. We are wired to connect. And in today's world, I think that social connection is kind of becoming a little blur. Like, you know, the social media, like, you know, getting on to having... 1,000 friends on Facebook, but then are we really friends? Or is there a social connection? So um, it would be a fascinating world to have a society that is connected, as you had said. Um, How one may reach that, I'm not sure. (laughs) But, you know, maybe we could have intercultural um, discussions of like maybe borrowing from like different cultures to see what works best. Um, um, we, yeah, I mean, one thing would be like, you know, in India, we always grew up with hands-me-downs and like we barely had like toys to play with. But here there's at every stage, there's like a hundred toys. Like, you know, oh, you have these building blocks, you have these, you know, sensory toys. I had no clue what sensory toys <laughs> were. Growing up, yeah. So all we had was like, you know, helping our, uh, helping out like, with chores and, like, you know, uh, always interacting with other people. Okay, go do this for your neighbouring, auntie. Go do this for this uncle down the street. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Like, the, what a great what a great um,
0: way for you to be able to observe these differences. And I guess you can see the difference in addiction rates in India and yeah. those environments versus in Brooklyn and New York, for example. That's a really great, that's <laughs> such a contrasting experience
1: you have to admit it, it is um yeah um, <laughs> um yeah i mean so like i i guess like um societies are very different and i think like even back home in india it's kind of now gearing towards trying to like uh, mimic the western world there as well um like for example um we think like, you know, okay, parenting is like, you have to, it's a very costly affair, we feel. But it seems cliche, but some of the best preventive measures seem to be free, like spending time with children, helping them navigate stressful situations or coping with challenges. Um, I mean, so like in our study, in the semi-structured interviews, the questions we basically asked these offspring um, for, about the home environment was like, Does your mother and father spend time talking to you about your day, your likes, your dislikes? Does your mom and dad uh, talk about your friends, movies you like, or help you with chores? Like, these are very simple questions. Something as simple as, like, spending time with your child can have a big impact. So, um, yeah, and that's what I feel is, like, more fascinating. Like, are we really trying to push ourselves to, like, look for that particular med- you know, um, treatment plan that will kind of answer us or maybe take a step back and say maybe it's as simple as like, you know, reigniting our social connections or making the, the quality much more effective.
0: <laughs> and this is the Dr. Anders' whole purpose. So he's here and on the podcast, <clears throat> he talks really clearly about this. He goes, the points of transmission of adversity – in children are humans and that's the way we break the points of transmission so if it was a virus we look for the points of transmission and we work out strategies to prevent it whether it's the mother to child but in this case we don't do that and and that's the most important effect of public health intervention that he can describe and think of is just what you said and it's all free and because it's free that makes it harder because there's not people out there pushing it because it is free.
1: Yes, that's true. I mean, that's true. That's, I mean, it's sometimes like because it's free, it's also, I don't know, the value for it kind of goes down if um, somehow, like, well, people can't excuse me, money out of it in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <right>. It, um, <laughs> uh, uh, it's, okay. it, it's also, yeah, and it's also kind of—I feel—sometimes people are skeptical. Hmm, really? Like, I spend more time with my child. Is it going to really work? Obviously, well, try it.
0: Marketing campaigns, like you can market something for you know two ninety nine, but then if you <laughs> increase it to twenty nine ninety nine. Its value increases for someone.
1: Yep, I bet we should create some pods and say, um, "Come spend time with your child for like five bucks an hour." <laughs> Maybe it'll
0: be a (laughs) hit. So I think that it can even be as little as five minutes, kind of like for for practical advice here. And it's not just biological here. I think we want to really emphasize that every single person, which is why we mentioned society, anyone can do this across the whole lifespan to start to see people and see them like for who they are. Just give them some time, even if it's just a, a smile, for example, or something yes. like that, can have enough impact on the actual caregivers themselves that are feeling stressed yeah. to allow them to have that five minutes with their own children or other people' children.
1: Yes. I mean, um, I forgot where I read this, but there was this really fascinating article about, like, stop fixing things, like, um, with your child. Like, we are always about... When it comes to parents, we feel that I have to fix, if something is wrong with my child, I have to fix it. But I think what is more important is like, you need to be there, like, you know, be responsive or like be involved in, it, it could be like, you know, the goods and bads they face. Um, our, our human being, the, the, our ourselves, we are actually like, as I said, as social beings, the way we are wired is Um, we learn from our social connections, like even our self-regulation. When the first time like my child actually heard the blender go, she was she was like, Oh my god, what is that? Is that a monster? She came running to me and I, I had to like, you know, make her stand there and say, It's just a blender, it's just making a milkshake, you see? And then like, you know, I patted her. Now she's not afraid of it. So that's you know, translates to every other anxiety-provoking issue in our life or decision-making problems in our life, right? So like, we look back on how we were able to regulate that anxiety that was created by some small thing as a blender to something large as, like, you know, a breakup. How do we cope with that? We learn that from our home environment. We're like, you know, okay, uh, calm down. I can make better choices or, like, you know, I can think about this. So that, yeah. So for me, it's as simple as like, okay, let's not fix it. Or it's not about me saying, Hey, it's a blender. Don't be afraid of it. It's like, it's a blender. It's making your milkshake. You know, it's like trying to, it's different ways of like looking at the same thing. So it's
0: by you becoming aware that your child was scared of it too. Rather yes, exactly. To be boring. responsive. Yeah. Yes. That is,
1: that is an anxiety provoking thing for her.
0: So can I just say, uh, we have quite a few people in the audience that are also women in science, uh, trying to raise families. And so as two women in science that are raised, well, my kids are in their 20s now, and I'd made tons and millions of mistakes. And for someone that you you have a two-year-old running a big lab in New York, do you want to give them some tips about how you can still stay involved with your kids and also be a highly successful scientist in a very competitive environment in America.
1: (laughs) I don't know if I'm the right person to give that advice, but as a mom, I'll say that like, you know, um, there's nothing called as perfect parenting. There's nothing called as like, oh my God, look at this. So, and so is like the perfect parent. Um, We all make mistakes and making mistakes sometimes is good because we learn from them. And I think the emphasis here is learning from them, right? Like, um, um, it, You know, even though I'm like doing this research, it's not like um, I've never had like, oh my God, this is exhausting parenting. It is sometimes because there is also, for example, I'm going to throw in a little bit of research here. There's also work that says that um, parent-child relationships is bi-directional. Bi- that is both the child's temperament can also affect the parenting behaviors. So if there's a difficult child, and we know, like parents know it, sometimes if there's a difficult child or a child with high impulsiveness, it makes parenting challenging. And so as much as like this paper seems, oh, it's fascinating, but it's easier said than done sometimes. Um, but what we have to do is like always go back to the basics. Like we need to be there for these children because they are in a world that They don't know what is what. (laughs) They don't know the dangers. They're all learning. Everything is new for them. Uh, Just yesterday, I saw my daughter's eyes light up when she saw the first snow. Like, you know, now she's a toddler. Of course, she went on the snow when she was a year old. But then this was different. She was like, snow. And then it's a new experience. You know, for me, it's so boring. I'm like, I see snow every (laughs) And I'm like, oh, I have to shovel. But then it's fascinating thing. So spend that time you know, it's it's small things like, you know, you can spend five minutes here, you know, call your child. She's if, if the child is like, wants to play in the sand, like wants to touch something. So these small little things can make big impacts. We don't have to think that, oh my God, I have to buy that fancy toy that my neighbor bought for your child. That's not important. Um, I think one take home message from the paper that, we were talking about is all about the closeness you develop and that closeness um, can be ignited by all these small little things like you know talking to them just uh, um, you know asking what they feel like or like you know if they don't like something that they're eating what are they going through like you know once they understand their emotions are able to do it those are actually um, the uh, behaviors that are reflected in the working of the brain areas that later on lead to, you know, better decision-making motion. Um,
0: every interaction we have with a human is, generates a biological response in the
1: other- Exactly, person. yes. And,
0: you know, and if you don't mind me uh, saying, like, I was, I found parenting very stressful when I was running my lab at UCSF and some of the, and it's awful, awful that you only remember the bad moments, which I know there were tons of really good ones, but. I remember having to get the kids to school before the PI meeting, you know, where everyone in the center would meet on a Monday at nine and I was racing the kids to school, but my daughter, who's second, who's like quite young, she always had hair that would never be brushed. It was always knotted. And so I used to end up developing a coping strategy that was, if you knew my research now about sugar addiction, was the only way I could get her to sit still so I could get the knots out of her <laughs> Yeah, like it was, uh, and especially living in America, because I'm from Australia, originally the food there that you can provide your children is terrible, like the amount of sugar But anyway made her really calm and I could get her to school without matted hair. But that's one of my many coping strategies of things I regret that as I wish I knew differently now.
1: (laughs) No, I think your focus should also, as you said, there are like these many you know, good and nice moments also that you shared. I think those are something that we have to keep building on. Uh, there's never going to be like, a, you know, a perfect parent, a perfect day, a perfect child. We're all like, you know, um, products of the dynamics of all of these Um aspects you know so um like i can tell you like when my daughter started daycare it was stressful for me like i was like oh my god she has to be in there by 9 a.m and i'm like you know she's not waking up she's not waking up like oh do i wake her up and then i'm like oh brush your teeth fast and i'm like wait step back she's a two-year-old she just wants to play with a toothbrush she doesn't know what school is and like how that is going to be a stepping stone for whatever so i'm like you know what it's okay if she wants to sleep in So this morning, she wanted to sleep in. She had a rough night with coughing. She wanted to sleep in. I said, I'm not going to wake my poor kid up. I texted the school and said, she's going to come in late. That's it, you know? Problem cleared. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I didn't have to, like, rub my anxiety on her that she's getting late, which in her two-year-old, almost three-year-old mind doesn't know what late is. (laughs) My my
0: main concern was speeding around Berkeley through all the stop signs, trying to get my my concern is I had to be there by nine. <laughs> anyway, that's um, that's just the nature of what everyone's experiencing out there. I know for sure that that's happened. Yeah, I think,
1: the, I think the pandemic has made it even more worse. Right, like uh, we are all hunkered down at home, and we ourselves don't have the social connections that we used to. Like um, we don't no longer are able to go out. I mean, a year ago we could just not go out and socialize and like, you know, meet people. So that made it even more worse. And um, even some of the research now is showing that like, even just talking to someone, just having someone to listen to, or uh, it, it, it's really helpful. So our social connections are important.
0: <laughs> so just as we head to the conclusion here, so alcohol use d- disorders are still being treated the same way. People look at the alcohol, you have to the Absent. there's all sorts of different programs and retreats and treatments. Um, but we do now know with pretty significant high levels of evidence around genetics, epigenetics, now microRNAs, social interactions, we know that adverse childhood experiences play a significant and large role in the development of addiction later in life. We have really strong evidence for this, but still healthcare professionals and others are still treating the disease it, As a disease, which it is becomes, because it changes brain development. How do we start to change the way uh, medical practice, healthcare professionals, and others start to support and change the risk of developing alcohol use disorders in in you know the population in general, but people that have already experienced it? How do we start to change and shift? and this is, a, this is a significant issue in Australia right now where they're trying to restrict alcohol consumption in indigenous communities again. Um, but what do we do to start shifting our society's understanding of how to change this?
1: I mean, that's a great question. I mean, so I'm fully aware of actually currently I'm not fully aware what healthcare professionals are currently doing to support parents or like, you know, al- you know offspring uh, who have high risk for alcohol use problems and um, but I think I would recommend including discussions on home environment parenting behaviors and parent-child relationships as part of like uh, the healthcare professionals routines um, perhaps making freely available some resources for parents to navigate parenting issues and handling critical situations may also be helpful and um, it should also be I mean Um, I think noted that uh, the way I look at it is that alcohol and substance use is as old as our human civilization and I'm not sure if we can ever have a world free of alcohol use but what we can be sure of is how we can manage it and can mitigate its impact on the brain and behavior so the years of addiction research has established that addiction creates this vicious cycle that you know Problem drinking can impair brain functioning, which in turn may lead to poorer choices and more problematic drinking and so forth. So given this nature of alcohol addiction, it is important that effective treatment plans be implemented as well. Although we know that, you know, adverse childhood experiences in addiction um, is important. There's strong evidence, but still society in general continues to treat the symptoms of alcohol addiction after they have impacted the brain. That's but. There is also evidence that with such treatment and abstinence, some, if not all of the brain impaired brain functions can be restored. So that is, we do have compelling evidence for that. And uh, there is also compelling evidence that adverse childhood experiences or ineffective parenting have an impact on brain development and behavior, but Alcohol use disorder or substance use problems is a multifaceted problem. It encompasses medical, social, economic, and political areas, um, and there is no one answer to this problem. Like every year, we spend millions of uh, <laughs> to understand the problem. Um, you know, uh, this particular devastating issue of problematic drinking. What factors contribute to addiction, and how we can treat or mitigate these effects? but my best guess is to tackle it through multiple angles simultaneously. And um, to just a take home point would be like throwing light on the impact of social relationships and buffering or protecting against alcohol use problems is one angle that could- I
0: think also, um, and I know you haven't studied this yet, but healthcare professionals and points of intervention are, are actually caregivers and you just yes. kind of said that caregivers it doesn't have to be parents or family member it doesn't have to be people. exactly they are also points of transmission that can be changed
1: absolutely uh, that's that's
0: a ear or at least having uh, supported services because um, here people can only be seen for like 10 minutes or something like that so family history is never very much discussed in these kind of scenarios yes um and it's normally in another setting. So but I think every person is a potential point of transmission that can be a, a, something that can block through that social interaction by just asking that question. And I saw an amazing documentary um, that's being put out about youth crime. Okay. And it talked about a young boy who'd been committing crime because uh, he had no family at all. He was stealing for food and clothes, and then that escalated. And he was saying one police officer who picked him up just uh, just asked him a question that allowed mm-hmm. him to be seen and, and, for the first time. And that ended up changing. It's not just the only thing that happened as a consequence, but it did change the direction of his life where now he's training to become a police officer.
1: Wow, <laughs> incredible.
0: So there's lots of points of um, intervention, I guess.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, as you said, like, um, where you were talking about, like, you know, um, humans being, you know, um, we are resilient creatures. And then, you know, we are resilient through our connections as well, as you said. Um, One small thing can make a big impact. Um, And so, like, I have also seen here sometimes, like, parents have uh, their own communities, private groups. Sometimes they actually um, sound off of each other. Like, you know, they use others as sounding boards. Um, that is something like where we can start really early, like trying to understand um, how we can make our behaviors more effective. Um, sometimes um, we may not have the answers ourselves. Someone else may have it. And as you said, like, you know, that's where like uh, other human beings and like, you know, that that connections can help. Um,
0: so what what's next for you what's what are you working on? Are you allowed to share broad, broad, broad um, so,
1: <laughs> so the next thing that I'm interested in looking at uh with the data that we have is to see uh, how stability in this uh, relationships okay now we have established that like close relationship with parents during adolescence can promote healthier brain development and can kind of mitigate some of the neurocognitive risk that they have because of genetic uh, predispositions. But in in the next phase, w- I'm kind of looking at uh, over the period through ex- throughout adolescence, from the ages of 12 to 17, all those years, if, there, if the stability of the relationship between parents and children is what leads to this, or sometimes they may be unstable you know the relationship may not be um very stable that instability might probably uh, you know may cause even more or worsen the problems as i said uh is that that's something that i want to like look at and also as i said in the beginning of the podcast that i'm interested in looking throughout the lifespan not just um parents but peers relationship with peers how they can contribute sometimes they can help or hinder um, and uh, later on romantic partners. Um, so at different stages of our life, how our social relationships can actually help or hinder our what mental health problems. problems. Of course, oh, they are important. <laughs> and I think like COVID study is well poised for that because we have multi-generational um, you know families that we look at. So that's actually a good thing to uh, you know bring into the picture. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> that well, we have many grandparents taking care of kids too.
1: Um, yes.
0: And parents uh, maybe have severe
1: addiction. Yes, in Koga too. So like, although this particular study focused on only on uh, children who uh, said they lived with both biological parents, uh, but in the larger picture, when we include all the children, there is a majority of children who never lived with their biological parents because of, various issues it was divorce or like you know a parent had died or so they lived with your other kittenkin, and kin like you know they could be grandparents or aunts and uncles so again I think the question goes back to is it always the biological parent or is it just a responsive caregiver
0: yes and sometimes grandparents have it easier don't they because they don't have to yes bad. so I have, <laughs> they have all that experience under the belt exactly so I have a chance to not have to unmat my grandchildren's hair using chocolate <laughs> waffles <laughs> I get a redo <laughs> anyway thank you so much for coming on our podcast sharing with us your um, brilliant work I think it's uh, fabulous I'm so happy for your success and getting your own research lab now that's not not easy task especially recently so I wish you all the success in the world and, and mothering as well these two tasks are simultaneously quite difficult to achieve but you're doing it so well done
1: thank you so much dr bartlett for having me on the podcast and like you know this was fascinating it's really great thank you so much (laughs)